don't need no money to define my life and make me smile because Jesus love defines me and by his grace I live in style oh now God looks at me Jesus colored glasses Oh now God looks at me to Jesus colored glasses I don't need to worry about my past and what I've done for Jesus death redeems me the past is gone the future's won oh now God looks at me Jesus colored glasses Oh, now God looks at me with Jesus' colored glasses. Oh, now I'm crucified. I'm dead and buried with Christ. I have been raised and I am seated on high. With my Lord, my God, who loves me. I know God accepts me, but now he sees me as his son. For the Spirit joined me to Jesus And now I rest in what He's done Oh, now God looks at me With Jesus' colored glasses Oh, now God looks at me Jesus colored glasses Oh now God looks at me in Jesus colored glasses Oh now God looks at me to Jesus colored glasses
Was it one of them, the kids? Because I, I look over here in the, ch- in the pulpit and I'm going, hey, I got another extra one of these things. I lost one of them. Two of them, actually. I got one back. So I'll bet you it was that Cheyenne or that Tyler. Maybe not. All right, uh, good evening. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verse 14? Romans chapter 15, verse 14, and uh, please keep in your prayers, you know, Sharon Brown's cat, why it is sick, is a kidney stone, it won't dissolve. Hey, I know I'm getting soft for my old age, I don't know, I can't believe I sent out a prayer request for that. <clears throat> I, I must, have, must be going daft. But anyways, yeah, so her, she's all, you know, Sharon doesn't have any kids, she has cats. And, uh, you know, they're really precious to her, so keep that Wyatt in her, her prayers. So... In, in your prayers, not her prayers, your prayers. All right, should be at Romans chapter 15, verse 14, and we're going to wrap up verse 16 here this evening. Let me get rid of this coat because it's a little bit warm up here. Uh, we're going to wrap up uh, Romans 15, 16, and, and uh, as, no, as most of you know, I'm I usually I'm at least a month ahead of, of what the schedule, what we are teaching, so it gives me time to f- catch any errors I'm, I did and go over what I've done. That's why I try to do it in advance. I never, never, ever do a, a lesson of class and do it the night before. I don't know how guys do that. I, I could never do that. I figured I'm missing something, and I have to take. I have to, I'm, I'm not too smart, so I have to take my time going through stuff. Otherwise, I feel like I'm, I'm missing something, leaving stuff out. But um, that. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm up to Romans 15:30. So I'm almost finished with chapter 15, and then a lot of chapter 16. When we get to that, like the first 14 verses, I think it is, is a lot about. You know, people he's, uh, you know, sending greetings to. There's a lot of names and stuff. So there's not a lot of doctrine in those verses. So we'll probably fly, end up flying through those those first 14 verses of chapter 16. We're, we're getting pretty close. We're going to, you know, toward the, uh, getting near the end. But uh, uh, then we're going to do Jonah, as I've been announcing. We're going to do the book of Jonah. And that's only four chapters. I'm going to try to do some more books that are a little less involved. As we had Gen- Genesis, we did all 15 chapters and we did, uh, we did, we're going to do, finish Romans, unless the Lord takes me out. But uh, we're going to do Romans, and that, uh, that's going to be uh, a, quite an accomplishment when we get that done. And uh, not many churches have done the book of Romans, especially the way we did it. So I'm glad we, I'm glad we learned, learned this book, and we're still actually have a little further to go. All right, you should get, uh, with, that, with that being said, let's take a moment of silent prayer, get this show on, on the road here. And applying First John one nine if necessary, so that we can ensure the fact that we're restored to fellowship, and then we maintain our fellowship by bringing our thoughts into obedience to the Spirit, who speaks to us through the teaching of the Word of God, and <clears throat> that's obeying the command of Ephesians five eighteen to be filled with the Spirit. And uh, that uh, if there's anything that's disturbing or distracting to you, do what First Peter five seven says: cast all your anxieties upon the Lord, because He cares for you. So, in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day to study the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture, and learn about your plan for our lives to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, to grow up to be like him. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of the Spirit who makes it possible for us to understand the Word. We thank you for his uh, being our true mentor and teacher and guiding us in the study of the Word and in the application of the Word. And we thank you for the gift of your Son and his death and resurrection, which makes it possible for us to not only enter boldly into your presence in prayer, but also to, to uh, study your word and to have the ability to do that and to uh, grow to spiritual maturity. We thank you for the fact that we're been, we have been placed in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with him. And help us, in this, all, in this, all of us in this ministry, to appropriate by faith that teaching and the word so that we might experience victory over the sin nature and the devil and his cosmic system. And we just pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would continue to give us enlightenment into that great power and love that has been directed toward us. We also, Father, we lift up our ministry as a whole, not only those in this geographical location, but those a part of our extended congregation. Uh, we uh, We just pray for... Uh, each and every one of us, and help us, Father, with the attacks of the enemy and the different situations that go on in our lives and the life of this, life of this church. So just help us, Father, and continue to deliver us. And we thank you for all the answered prayers. And we just thank you, Father, for your patience and your kindness and your graciousness to us. And we also pray, Father, for Pastor Azam in uh, Pakistan. And we just pray for his deliverance from the the violence that uh, has been threatened against him and his family uh, by the uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalists, the radicals there. We just pray, Father, for his deliverance and the deliverance of his family from that that dangerous situation. And others uh, around the globe that are are our brothers and sisters in Christ that are uh, suffering persecution, we pray for their deliverance in and out of their situations. We also pray, Father, for those in our ministry that are that are uh, having uh, problems and difficulty and struggling and having problems uh, not getting answers to certain questions in life and are having difficulties and understanding your ways, Father. Just show them that that they only need to do is to understand that you will always have their best interests in mind and help us to just trust you and walk in faith and not to uh, be like the Exodus generation that was always complaining and never walking by faith. So we just pray, Father, for that, and we also pray for this evening's class. We thank you for those who have made it their way into the chapel and those who might be listening right now on the Internet. We thank you for them, and they're taking out uh, time out from their days, from their jobs and businesses and families and pressures and difficulties that they're facing. We just pray, uh, thank you, Father, for them and that they would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment here this evening that they would gain a greater knowledge and understanding of you, Father, and your character and nature and who your Son is and the Spirit and what has been done for them through the Spirit and the Son. And we just pray, Father, that you would help the communicator, help him to deliver your full counsel to your people here this evening in a fashion that would be pleasing to you and minister to your people so that as a result of this Bible class, we can, uh, you and your Son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted up and glorified and we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, we pray for these things. Amen. Now, last, last Wednesday, we began a study of Romans fifteen sixteen by noting that the Father gave the Apostle Paul 
the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of his being a servant of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. We compare that with what he said in chapter 11 and chapter 1. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He mentioned this and boasted of this throughout his writings. This was something that was very, very important to him. And as we go further into chapter 15, we're going to find out what Paul did as an apostle to the Gentiles and what that entailed. He would church plant. He would go to areas of the Roman Empire that Christ had never been known, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and that he's the Savior and he died and rose from the dead on the third day. So he would go to those areas of the Roman Empire, plant churches. He would leave guys like Timothy and Titus and Tychicus and Paphroditus and guys like that, Apollos. These guys would help him in the ministry. He had a lot of people who helped him in his ministry, and some of which he mentions in chapter 16 of this epistle. So he would chant church plan. He would, you know, he would go and he would, you know, have, if things needed to be tidy up in Corinth or somewhere or Galatia, he'd send somebody in or write a letter. But he would, he would, you know, they would get pastors in those areas, and then he'd move on. He wouldn't sit in one area for very long. He trusted in the Holy Spirit to run the things of the church. And if something was really critical that needed to be addressed, he would write a letter or send somebody like Titus or or Timothy to deal with a difficult situation, a tricky situation. And we've seen that with a lot of his epistles that Paul writes that are now in the New Testament. A lot of those epistles are Paul addressing certain problems in different churches that he established. So Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles That doesn't mean, because he was an apostle to the Gentiles, that he never evangelized the Jews. All you have to do is look at Acts and read Romans. You know, he would go to the Jewish synagogue. If it wasn't a Jewish synagogue, like in Philippi, he'd go down to the river where the Jews would pray if they didn't have a synagogue. And he would evangelize the Jew first and then go to the Greek because salvation is of the Jews. And Jesus went to the house of Israel first. And then he said once Israel rejected, he would go off to the Gentiles. So Peter, James, and John, they would, they would hit the Gentiles as well. But they were primarily sent to the house of Israel. And then when Israel rejected Jesus and they were destroyed, the nation, in 70 A.D. by all intents and purposes when they destroyed the temple and deported the nation to Rome and uh, took the contents of the temple and brought it to Rome, which Josephus records. When that took place, basically they, the rest of the apostles who were still alive, they started going to the Gentiles. And Peter's epistles and John's epistles are written from places like Ephesus and where they were ministering to Gentile uh, predominantly uh, churches that were Gentile in, in, in race. So this is what, a, what it means to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was Paul's special area of service, was to plant churches throughout the Roman Empire, go to the Gentiles with the gospel, those who were non-Jewish racially. So last Wednesday, we began a study of Romans fifteen sixteen by noting that the Father gave the apostle Paul the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of his being a servant of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. Last Thursday, we noted the second statement in this verse in which Paul writes that he served the gospel like a priest in order that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be an acceptable offering to the Father. So he was, he was basically saying that the, Gentile, the gospel is the means by which the Gentiles are presented before the Father as an offering. Paul considered this He's using sacrificial language, ceremonial language. He's picturing himself like a priest, the Old Testament Israel, offering a sacrifice to the Lord. It meant that what he did, he thought, was very, very, very important, and it was very sacred. 
Now, when the pastors aren't apostles, but we, in a certain sense, our congregations are our offering to the Father. Paul mentions this to the Corinthians. When the Corinthians were, uh, when Paul was being maligned by the Judaizers, and many in Corinth did not recognize Paul's authority, they disrespected him, and they, did, they, they said a lot of things in a letter to him, and were, uh, d- d- which were disrespectful to him. And he was like saying, you know, uh, you guys respect the Judaizers, and they come with papers, and they come with a lot of pomp and circumstance, and say, oh, we're the doctor of the, we have the doctorate of theology uh, in, in, in Jerusalem under the Gamaliel. And Paul would walk in, he'd say, you're my epistle. You're my letter. You're my offering to God. You're demonstrate, uh, you're a manifestation of my ministry among the Gentiles. The fe- you're the fruit of my ministry. And the pastor, who has a, a congregation, his congregation is, is he wants to be, have some fruit that's present to the Father that would bring glory to the Father. So in a sense, a pastor's congregation is his offering to the Father. And so it's considered, Paul considered what he did, presenting the gospel, and all pastors should feel this way, is an extremely, extremely important service. It's the greatest thing you could do for your country. It's the greatest thing you could do for your family. It's the greatest thing you could do for your friends, your home, your society that you live in, the town that you live in, is to proclaim the gospel. There's not a greater job on the planet, including the President of the United States. I wouldn't trade the job of a pastor or a communicator of the Word of God, however you want to slice it. it, it, There's nothing that compares to it. And it's because of the message that you've been called and given the responsibility to proclaim boldly and accurately to the world. And so Paul, in this verse in Romans 15, 16, he states that he he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be an acceptable offering to the Father. Now this evening we're going to wrap up the verse, and it took three evenings to do, and you're probably wondering why you're taking three evenings to do one stupid verse, Bill. Well, I'll tell you why. It's different than a narrative like Genesis. With Genesis, I could take a lot of verses, a lot of times, because it was a narrative. And sometimes certain verses, three or four verses, would contain one thought or one idea. Or maybe a ten, ten verses containing one paragraph would present the idea that it's being taught. Romans is a different type of writing. It's a different genre. It's a different type of literature. It's an argument. And Paul in one verse, like this verse, has three separate ideas that the Holy Spirit is communicating. So it's my job to present those to you. And could I have done it a different way? Could I have gone, you know, two or three verses at a time? Yeah. But as I've told many times people in this ministry, my conscience would be bothering me. And maybe somebody else can do that, and that's fine by them, but I can't. That's my own personal conviction. It would bother me. I would feel like I'm not doing the passage justice if I just do a, 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 what do you call it, a summary of a verse or a summary of the chapter. Think of how much you would miss if I did that. And some people, they want that, and that's fine. Not everybody, this ministry is not for everybody. But, you know, if you're really a serious student of the Word of God, I think this is the place you'd want to be. So Paul, this evening, we're going to complete verse 16. Paul notes that his Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be an acceptable offering to the Father by being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now look at Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also, 
am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Admonish means teach one another. So that means you have to learn the word of God, and then you have to be able to you're, you're become teachers. Not a pastor. You're to become teachers. You should be able to help each other, instruct each other in the spiritual life. That's what the, the, it says in Hebrews chapter 5 at the end of that chapter. So Paul's talking about that he's convinced that the Roman believers are like this because he got reports about them from people that he sends greetings to in Romans chapter, chapter 16, like Priscilla and Aquila. And then it says in verse 15, and now, he ex- now to answer the question, if that's the case, Paul, if you're so convinced that we're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another, then why in the world did you write boldly to us in the main argument of the epistle, which is contained in Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13? Well, he gives you an answer in verse 15. But I've written very boldly in the sense that I commanded you and I issued prohibitions to you and I never even met you face to face. That's pretty bold. But he could do that because he is an apostle. He has authority over that church even though he is not the pastor of the church and didn't found the church. He is an apostle. He has the top authority at that time in the church. So I've written very boldly to you, he says in verse 15, on some points so as to remind you again. Why? Because of the grace that was given me from God. And he's, the grace there is his description of his, of his spiritual gift, which is the gift of apostleship. The apostleship, the gift of apostleship had ability to teach. They had the gift, they had multiple gifts, apostles. They could teach, they could speak in tongues, they could do miracles, they did all that stuff. And some of those are, not, are no longer extant. They don't, they're not around anymore. And actually, uh, Paul, he couldn't even heal people that he loved. At the end of his career, at the end of his career, he couldn't heal Epaphroditus, Philippians chapter two, and he couldn't heal Timothy. He told him, Timothy, to take some wine for your upset stomach, your ulcers. And so that, that tells you that if he wanted to heal, if he could heal him at that time, he would have healed them. But the, those sign gifts they call them, the miracles, tongues, the healing, that was to demonstrate that they spoke from God. It was to get the attention of the audience. And Paul's going to mention these signs and wonders that in, in this chapter. And he's going to talk to us about that in this, later on in this chapter. So he's, he's describing his gift of apostleship as grace. Now, why would he do that? It's because he wants, he's, he's being delicate with his audience. He's trying to be, get his point across, but at the same time, not, not be uh, insulting to them or not be too heavy. He's trying to, it's like when you, when you, when you write, a, always when you, when you write a letter or you write an email, you should always, and it's, and it's a delicate situation, you always got to try to throw humor in, the, humor, uh, humor in there. You got to try to balance it and because you want to make your audience relaxed and receive what you're saying. So this is what Paul's doing. He's, he's saying, I'm on the same footing with you. It's a grace. I got, I got this gift on grace. I didn't earn it or deserve it, so I'm not better than you. However, I do have this authority to communicate these things boldly to you in the main argument. I have a a responsibility to communicate to you the word of God, whether and no matter what, whether I, uh, what, no matter what the result might be, whether you might disagree or you might get angry with me, I still have to teach the truth. He said, "That's my responsibility." So then he says in verse sixteen, he says, "To be a minister, it's a purpose clause. We could translate it for the express purpose of being a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles." ministering as a priest the gospel of God 
And here's the purpose. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, the word sanctified is a key word in the Greek New Testament. It's a favorite word of the Apostle Paul. It's related to the word of the concept or the doctrine of sanctification, which Paul taught on in Romans 6, and we've gone over in the past, and we're going to touch on it again this evening. This word, sanctified, is the participle, the perfect passive participle form of the verb aiazo. Aiazo, it means to make holy, to sanctify, to consecrate. What does that mean? It means to set apart for God's purpose exclusively. So when you and I get born again and saved, the Holy Spirit, he sanctified us in the sense that he placed us in union with Christ. We're set apart to do God's will exclusively, not to do our own thing. He is our master. We are the slave. We're to fulfill his purpose. We are the guitar. God is the guy who plays the guitar. Okay? He plays the music. We're the instrument that he wants to play. That's the purpose. We're, we're, we're here. This word sanctif- uh, sanctified talks about the doctrine of sanctifi- sanctification. So this word ayazo means to set apart exclusively for the Father's purpose and it's used with Paul's Gentile Christian readers in Rome as its subject. Now what does that mean? Don't pass over what I just said. Think about that. We've been set apart, all believers, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have been set apart exclusively for the Father's purpose. What's the implication of that? The implication is God's got a plan for your life. That God considers you important. That God, you now have a personal sense of destiny. You have a role in this earth. You have something, you know, one of the terrible things in the world to see. And and when when I was younger, uh, you know, young people had this problem. When I was younger, before I got saved, and even before I really knew the word of God, it was one of the big problems with young people is where do I belong? Where do I fit in? A lot of people walk around, how do I fit in? What, is my life counting for anything? What, it, is it just a waste of time? Should I just live like hell and do whatever I want to do? Because who can, what, does it really matter in the end? Do I really have any insignificance in life? And this, this, particular, this particular doctrine and this particular word, ayazo, sanctified, means that God has a purpose for you. That you have a role to play in his plan. Everybody does. Every single person in this room that's a believer and every person who's listening to my voice that's a believer, God has got a purpose for you. That's what this particular word is talking about. This is what the doctrine of sanctification is all about. So the word here, Iazo, speaks of the Gentile Christian readers in Rome, Paul's Gentile Christians in Rome, experiencing sanctification by obeying the commands and prohibitions that Paul issued in the main argument of the epistle that helped to compose his gospel. And it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not only is the main argument of the epistle, Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13, not only is that main argument inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also, of course, like all scripture, the entire epistle is. So therefore, by, by obeying Paul's commands and prohibitions in the main argument, his Gentile Christian readers would experience their sanctification. They would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit since the entire epistle is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the mechanics is there, are, are this, and I'm going to explain it in a little minute, in a, in a moment, but without, the, no, without the, the, uh, the, the graphics on the board to explain it to you, or the, uh, the, the points. 
When you get saved, in a positional sense, and I'm going to explain this again, you've been put set aside to do God's will in a positional sense. I'll explain that later what that means. Ultimately, in a resurrection body, that that's per, sanctification will be complete. In the interim, we're to experience that sanctification. And that's only a potential because it's based upon whether we're going to be positive to the word of God. And when I say positive, not only learning it, but you put it into practice. Now, when, you, when you're listening to the word of God and you're reading it, and you're here, sitting here, listen, or you're in prayer, your own personal study, and you're listening to this book, and you're listening to what the Spirit's saying in this book, which the Spirit inspired this book, when you obey what it says, you're going to experience your sanctification. You are actually appropriating the power of God in your life because the word of God is alive and powerful. Why? Because the Spirit inspired it as well. So when Paul's saying here is, by obeying his commands and prohibitions in the main argument, his Gentile Christian readers would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit because the entire epistle is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctification is a technical theological term for the believer who's been set apart through the baptism in the Spirit at the moment of conversion in order to serve God exclusively, as I said before. And it's accomplished, as I also briefly mentioned, in three stages. One, we call it positional. Two, experiential. And three, ultimate. Now, the baptism in the Spirit is what, where it all took place. The baptism in the Spirit takes place exclusively during our dispensation, the church age. And it's accomplished at the moment of conversion, when you trusted in Jesus as Savior, when the omnipotence of the Spirit places us in, in an eternal union with Christ. Thus, it identifies, the Spirit identifies us with the, positionally with Christ in his death and resurrection and session. So sanctification is when you were set apart by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It means that you've been placed in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're identified with him. Now it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Notice there's no water there. Baptized has got two different meanings, a literal and a figurative, or you can call it a metaphorical meaning. There's no water in view here. Is the word used in the New Testament in relation to water? Absolutely. John the Baptist. But we see that Paul's using it in a figurative sense because he's talking about the body of Christ here. So the word actually, in a figurative sense, means to be identified with somebody. And I'm going to tell you what that means in a moment. But first, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all identified with one body, the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, baptize is the word baptizo. It means to cause the... What does it mean to baptize somebody? It means to cause the believer to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does identified mean? <clears throat> it means this. It means that the Holy Spirit, when we converted to Christianity, the Holy Spirit causes us to become identical and united with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he also, the Spirit also, ascribes to the believer the qualities and characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that he makes you the second person of the Trinity. It's not talking about that. It means that you were in the headship of Adam, condemned, but when you believed in Christ, you were transferred to the headship of Christ. God looks at you as he looks at his son. Not the second person of the Trinity, but crucified with Christ, 
died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised and seated with Christ. Therefore, how could God condemn you? You're dead with Christ to the law. You're dead with Christ to the sin nature. We studied that in Romans 6 and 7. Huge. Talk about you could make a huge advance spiritually if we, t- we all could if we took that on faith. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6, consider yourself dead to the sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because you died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. That's, therefore, this is what God's done for us. And now, Paul, now God expects us to respond in faith. Now, positional sanctification, remember there's three stages of sanctification. Positional sanctification is our entrance into the plan of God for the church age. And it results in eternal security as well as two categories of positional truth. And I'm going to take you to a couple of passages which uh, describe this or our documentation for that. Now, the first category of positional truth is what we call retroactive positional truth. That means when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried. When Christ was crucified, we were crucified. That's God's view of us, and that's what he did for us. See, you've got to understand what the Holy Spirit's doing. Christ crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what Christ did through the power of the Spirit, according to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit, when you believed in Christ and converted to Christianity, he appropriated that for you. That means he took possession of that for you. That's yours. You are what God looks at you as he looks at his son. Crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. It's a major teaching in the epistles of Paul. Huge. Huge. You've got to understand that. Let me show you what I'm talking about with this retroactive positional truth. Go back to a passage we studied in detail in the past. We're just going to peruse this real quickly to make the point. But look at Romans 6.1. Romans 6.1. You're in the book of Romans. Go back to Romans 6.1. Romans 6, one. what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? No, grace is not a license to sin. May it never be. How shall we who die to sin, the sin nature, how do we die to sin? We would die, we died with Christ. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Sin's in the singular because it's talking about the sin nature. Or do you not know that all of us who have been identified with Christ, Jesus, baptized, have been baptized or identified with Christ in his death. Therefore, now this is common knowledge. He's saying, or do you not know? Are you ignorant, is he saying in the Greek as we studied? This is something all Christians should know. He says, are you ignorant of this? Look at verse 4. Here's the conclusion. Because we died with Christ and we've been through the baptism of the Spirit, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, new life, eternal life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, first class condition we have, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Retroactive positional truth. When Christ died, we, we died. When he was crucified, we were crucified. When he was buried, we were buried. That's retroactive positional truth. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. You are free from the sin nature. We're free. Do we, we need to take that on faith to experience that. Ultimately, at the resurrection of the church, we're going to experience that perfectly. 
we'll never sin ever again because God's going to complete us with a resurrection body minus the sin nature. But God's saying, I freed you. It's like, a, it's like we're in a prison cell and the door is wide open. We don't have to live in the prison cell. We can walk out, walk out by faith, which manifests itself in obedience. And we got, and what happens to us when we sin? Let's say we get involved in certain immorality or certain sexual sins or, or bitterness or anger, or jealousy and that stuff, all the mental attitude sins or the sins of the tongue. When we get, when we get involved in that, we, what happens is we just, we, we stack ourselves right back in the prison cell. And the cell door is wide open. So when we say, we confess the sin and we do what God says and walk, walk in faith, we experience that deliverance that's ours. So why live as a prisoner is what he's saying. Look at verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, retroactive positional truth, and we have first class condition, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him for the death that he died. He died to the sin nature once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, the word even there, remember? In the same way is what it should be translated. He's saying, in the same way that Christ lives solely for the Father. In the same way we're to do it as well. So consider yourselves to be dead to the sin nature. Because this is how God views you. You're dead to the sin nature because you died with Christ. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's, as we'll see, his current positional truth. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So you've got to say, when, sin tempta- when the temptation of sin comes up, we've got to say, no, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead with Christ. I can't, I'm not going to sin. We have to, we, have to, we have to sit there and claim the promises of God. That's a promise in Scripture. If we claim that, we can experience that deliverance. So that was retroactive positional truth. Current positional truth is the church age believer's identification with Christ and his resurrection, accession, ascension and session. That's Ephesians 2, 4 and 6 through 6. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Romans 6, we just talked about that. You, if you died with Christ and you had, you've been raised with Christ. That's, that's current positional truth. That's where you are currently. Now go to Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. After Ephesians, after Philippians. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. These are another group of believers that Paul never met. Colossians 3, 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's current positional truth, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. So, because this is how God what, is God, what God's done for you and how he views you, you're raised with Christ, you're to keep your seek in the things above. You're to keep going for the things of God. Set your mind. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on the things above. The things of God. Where are the things of God? In the Bible. These things come from above. For you've done, It says set your mind on the things above, or you could say concentrate, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed at the rapture, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Resurrection body. That's ultimate sanctification. So, then he says in verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, and passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Therefore, says, based upon that teaching in chapter, verses 1 through 4, 
where you died with Christ, you're raised with Christ. So this is based upon that, how God views us and what he's done for us. We're to consider ourselves dead to those sexual sins or those, those sins that he just mentioned to us. So that's current positional truth illustrated. Now, positional truth, what does that mean? It first of all means this. It's what God has done for us. This is what God has done for us. We're reading in that. In Romans 6, we studied it. Ephesians, the first three chapters are all about positional truth. The last three are all about application. Romans is kind of set up the same way. First, you know, first eight chapters are pretty much positional. Primarily six, seven, and eight. 12, 13, 14, and the first half of uh, Romans 15 are all about application. How it applies. So positional sanctification is what God has done for us. Two, it's his viewpoint of us. That's, it, that's where spiritual self-esteem comes. The devil's whispering in your ear. You know, oh, you, you are a loser. You're a loser. Little Beatles song. And you're not what you should be. You know, you're, you're a loser. The devil's always saying, yeah, I know I'm a loser, but I'm also a winner. I'm, a, I'm raised with Christ. I've died with Christ. The old man has passed. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This, I'm, I used to be dead in my sins and transgressions. Now I've been raised and seated with Christ. That's how God views me. And God gets upset when we don't take that on faith and enter into that Sabbath rest. And I'll tell you what, I'm just as guilty of anybody of not entering the Sabbath rest. I'll tell you right that right now. And I remember, I just the Holy Spirit was telling me, all right, cool it. Otherwise, you're going to be ended up like one of those Exodus generation people. Your corpse is going to be dead in the wilderness out here in a cornfield. So it, what, what is it? We don't walk in faith. We don't rest in God, our position in Christ. Number three, positional sanctification sets up the, present, the potential to experience exp, uh, sanctification in time. I say potential to experience it because it demands that we obey God's word, respond in faith, which will manifest itself in obedience to the word of God but if you say no to it and you have that tr- choice that God gives you still, what's going to happen? It's only, it's only a potential. You have to make a volitional decision. Many decisions to experience sanctification. Now look at the fourth reason. The fourth exp- explanation for positional sanctification or the fourth description is that positional sanctification provides the believer with a guarantee of receiving a resurrection body. Now by positionally I mean that God views us as believers as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. Because at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit placed us, the believer, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at the Ephesians. You're in Colossians, right? Go back to one, a couple of books. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2.1. Now the first three verses are going to describe what we were in Adam, under the headship of Adam, condemned. Look at it says in verse 1. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead, spiritually dead, and your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, your lifestyle, according to the course of this world, the cosmic system, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the unsaved, among them, the unsaved, the sons of disobedience, we, us Christians, all too lived formerly in the lusts of our flesh, 
flesh, we're talking about the sin nature, but from the perspective of its location. It's in the genetic structure of our physical body. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as even as the rest. That's our nature prior to being converted to Christianity, prior to having faith in Christ. But look at verse 14. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. Current positional truth. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I love this. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something. I don't know if I should say it. Because I'll probably have a lot of nuts in the place saying all kinds of, a lot of stuff is going on. You're whacked out, Bill. But I don't care. I'll say it anyways. I, and, don't, and I hope nobody starts going whacked out about this and starts saying, yeah, me too. I have all these, you know. In my apartment, okay, in my apartment, and I've had certain situations that happen when I was younger, but in my apartment, the weird things have been going on in my apartment, <laughs> okay? I'd be laying in bed, and I'm getting somebody, not the light bulb flicking, but flicking the light bulb. Like, you hear a light bulb flick, bang. And I'm getting banging on the walls and stuff. And it's in the middle of the night. And my part, it's like, you know, what is going on here? It's like Ringo's in here. And I started to get really, my skin crawling up on my back. I was like, something's, you, well, you sense something. See, they're trying to knock me around here. So you sense something, because I'm a whack job. So I'm sensing something. Is, it's like evil in my presence. You know, if you, get the, you, you must have gotten that. You just say, Something is really, really, really weird here. So I'm sitting there and going, you know, say, is it my imagination or am I crazy? And first inclination was, you're crazy. But it was getting really ridiculous. It was getting really bothersome and I couldn't sleep. So I just said, all right, I'm going to do a little test. And I said, I'm going to start praying. And if this goes away, okay, then I know I got the enemy all around me. (laughs) All right? So... Sure enough, I'm praying. And you know what I was praying? Father, I'd say it out loud so that everybody could hear. Father, I'm in, I'm in union with your son, Jesus Christ. Your word says this. I'm claiming promises of scripture. I'm in union with your son, Jesus Christ. I'm higher than the angels, including the fallen angels. And I'm going to judge the angels, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, and you know, quote in scripture, and that I believe what you said to me in the word, that I'm crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. And Father, get rid of these, whatever's going on, get them out of here. And you know what? It stopped. It stopped. I said, it just stopped. It was going on for a while. And finally I said, you know, I'm going to pray for this. And it stopped. And there's been other wacky, crazy things going on in my life. Now I'll pray get all these emails. Yeah, Pastor Bill, I get the, you know, I get the, 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 the exorcist flying, through, you know, the girl flying through my room. You know, it's like, oh, God, why did I even say anything? The whole point I'm trying to say is when I was praying on it, it was like claiming my position in Christ. I was realizing, I was saying to God and making every, and making, and being, saying to myself too, that when I'm praying to the Father, I'm at the right hand of the Father. I'm in union with Christ. So what, it conquered my, helped me to conquer, conquer my fear. I mean, that's what you do. You say, well, you know, I'm in union with Christ. I'm right there with the Father. When you're praying, actually, you're in the presence of the Father. We're going to study this in Romans 15, 13, or 1530. We studied this in prayer. That you're in the presence of Christ. People send me stuff on the book on prayer. Send me email. I never ever thought of that. That I'm in the presence of the Father when I'm praying. I do it all the time, especially when I'm scared. 
When I had the car accident, my t- car got totaled, and I'm saying, what the heck is going on? And, you know, that, that car got hit, I got sandwiched there. If you saw the car, it's a big car I had. That was like a, that was like, and I'm sitting there going, and I, and I'm, I'm still looking at, I'm looking in the mirror, you know, like, I'm never sitting there going, you know, you know, Father, you know, just, you know, help me here, you know, you know, praying. And I was praying consciously aware of my position in Christ. And I'm just, first thing I go, okay, my face is still pretty, all right. Because all I can think of is, my nose is over here and the pain hasn't hit yet. And I'm like, I'm screwed. I'm going to look awful. I'm going to be having plastic surgery for the rest of my life. Could help me, you know, but you never know. So I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh. And, uh, but you know, when you get afraid, and you know, the enemy is out to get us. <laughs> and if we're part of this ministry, he's out to get the deacons, he's out to get me. We got bullseyes on our back. He's out to get all of us. He, our enemy is them. And they're invisible, and they don't like us, and they would like to kill us if they could, but they can't do anything unless God permits it. We see that with the, with the book of Job. Satan, if you let Satan do whatever he want, he would wipe us all out. We'd nothing be left. Since we're just flesh, but we're, we're, we survive and we're alive because of God. So, you know, it, it, and, there's, and there's a lot of things going on. You know, you know people like with, uh, with, you know, with the things that, you know, with John Nalick's going on, and there's other things going on, and, and, and people in the ministry they're talking to. You know, we, we must be doing something right because you got, you know, maybe it's because of the, you know, the, the outreach with the website and all the hits and the books and the, the people in this area and, you know, we, we've, we've planted seeds. Maybe we're causing people problems. Maybe that's why, we, you know, we get problems and difficulties. Maybe that's why we have problems in our jobs and our businesses and our families. <laughs> Open up your eyes. You know, that's what happens. So when, when, you, when we pray in, position is very important. Be aware of your... When you pray, you should be aware of your position. When you say, in Jesus' name, what you're saying is, Father, I'm aware of my presence, in your, being in your presence at the right hand, of the, at your right hand, Father. I'm in union with your Son. In his name, is based upon his merits and my merit, the, the merits of my union with him. So positionally means that God views us as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ because at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit placed the believer in union with Christ. This union identifies the Christian with Christ's crucifixion. Romans 6, 6, as we read. Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Also, we've been identified with Christ in his death. Romans 6, 2, verses 7 and 8 as well in that chapter we read. Colossians 2, 20. Colossians 3, 3, which we read. Also, we're identified with him in his burial, Romans 6, 4, Colossians 2, 12. His resurrection, Romans 6, 5. Again, we read that. Ephesians 2, 6. Philippians 3, 3 chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Colossians 2, 12. Colossians 3, 1, which we read. And also, we're identified with Christ in his session. That means he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's the session. We're there. We are there. Well, I don't believe that, Pastor Bill. I don't feel like I'm there. It doesn't matter how you feel. Since when it ever matter how you and I feel? It's what God's word says. If he says that about us, and we just show just a few of those passages, God expects us to take that on faith. Claim those promises. So we're, in, we're identified with Christ in his session, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the believer's sanctification because the Christian sanctification is based upon the person of Christ in his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and session, 
And it's all designed to conform us into the image of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 on the board, but by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, or in Christ, in him, though that's talking about, it's alluding to your union with Christ. Or in other words, your marriage to Christ. Your identification with Christ. That's what that's referring to. That was a technical, when Paul says that prepositional phrase is alluding to this position in Christ. So, but by his doing, he says, in Colossians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Experiential sanctification. Remember I told you sanctification's in three stages? And actually, experiential sanctification is what Paul's talking about in Romans 15, 16, when he says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, at the end of that verse. Experiential sanctification, what's that? It's our fu- the function of our spiritual life in time. And how do we have our spiritual life function in time? Obey the Father's will. Where is that? It's revealed by the Spirit through the communication of the Word of God. Experiential sanctification is only a potential... Why? Because it's contingent upon you and I responding to what God has done for us at the moment of our conversion. Therefore, only believers who are obedient to the word of God will experience sanctification in time. Ultimate sanctification, everybody is going to experience this, regardless of our response in time to what God has done for us. Ultimate sanctification is the third and final stage of sanctification. It's the perfection of the church-age believer's spiritual life at the rapture of the church, which is the completion of the plan of God for the church-age believer. When we die, we'll be so... You you and I have truly have no clue what we've been dragging around all this time. This sin nature is such a drag, and we're going to be rid of it. All the things getting tired... The, sin, the selfishness that we have, the self-centeredness that we, we have, dragging around, we have to constantly fight with, the, with, the, with faith and the power of God, that is all going to be gone when we get a resurrection body. Ultimate sanctification is talking about that moment when the rapture of the church happens. The rapture is talking about the resurrection of the church, which is the next prophetic event to happen in the world. The very next prophetic event and we don't know the exact time of it is. It's imminent. We studied that in Romans 13, 11 through 15, 11 through 14. So ultimate sanctification is the guarantee of a resurrection body, and it will be experienced, as I said earlier, by every believer, regardless of their response in time to what God has done for them at their conversion. Now in Romans 15, 16, which you can head back there if you like, because we're about to wrap this up. In Romans 15, 16, the verb translated sanctified, aiazo, it functions as a participle of means. And what does that indicate to us? It indicates that Paul's Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves to be acceptable to the Father by means of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And how do you get sanctified by the Holy Spirit? We just studied that. Experiential sanctification. God has his will. It's in the scriptures. Crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. We're to operate in faith. And if we do, we will obey the command. Consider yourself dead to the sin nature and alive to God. You will pray from your position in Christ. When you're in fellowship, you're basically experiencing your sanctification. 
experiencing your sanctification and experiencing your fellowship, uh, your uh, salvation are two sides of the same coin. They describe Christian fellowship from two different perspectives. Experiencing your sanctification talks about experiencing your deliverance from sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. Experiencing your sanctification is experiencing the fact that you've been set apart for God exclusively to do his will. So this verb, ayazo, is talking about the second stage of sanctification, experiential. It's a participle of means. It indicates that Paul's Gentile Christian readers in Rome would cause themselves, because the middle voice denotes their volitional responsibility, they would cause themselves to be acceptable by the, to the Father by means of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be accept, if you want to be pleasing to the Father, obey Him. Just like any other father, he, he, he wants you, if you obey him, he's going to be pleased. And that's all he asks from us. And it's not, like, it's not like God's asking us to do something that we have no capacity for. We do. It's just the case of our love. What motivates, this is the key thing. What motivates us to operate in faith? What motivates us to obey God? Isn't it love? Love is what our love for him and our love for what, who, he did, who he is and what he did and, his lo- and our love for his, his son and what he did for us at the cross, it should melt our hearts. It should bend our wills. This is saying, God, I love you. Saying, I love you. Look what I did through this, my son and the spirit. Look what I've done for you. This is what I want for you, from you. This is what I require from you. You're my child. You're under my responsibility. You have a job that I want you to do. You have a role. You have a purpose. You have a personal sense of destiny. And all I'm asking you to do is to love me back. And love will motivate us. Our love for him will motivate us to obey him and walk by faith. And how do we get motivated by his... How do we... You know, we want, we're motivated by our love for him, but it's his love for us that's motivating us to love him. He's the one who initiated what he did at the cross, sending his son to the cross, when we were yet his enemies. By what his son did... The great sacrifice that the Son of God did. And then raising, being raised from the dead for us, for our justification. And sending the Holy Spirit to appropriate all that Christ accomplished for us. Raising us and seating us with Christ. He did that in love for us. It's only right we respond back to him. We should respond back to him. That's what God's looking for. So the secret of obedience is love for him. And love, the secret of loving for him... The secret of that is what he did for us. That's why it takes time. And I'm guilty of it too as a pastor. Because you know what? You can be, you know how it is. You're in the middle, you're working, working. You're trying to get the deadline. You have certain things you want to get done. Blah, blah, blah. And you have all this thing. And you know, it's so easy. Even as a pastor, and you're studying the word of God. It's so easy to go run by and never take a deep breath and say, okay. And think about these things. Because we're so busy running, running, doing, 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 doing. Do, 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 do. You know, you could be studying the Word of God all day, diligent, figuring out the exegesis of the passage, looking at technical things, and never hearing God if you don't watch out. We've got to slow down, stop and smell the roses. I think somebody wrote a song like that. Was it Mac Davis or something like that? Well, you know, and when we do that, that gives us a chance to contemplate what God has done for us. That's where your love grows. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, he prayed that the Philippians' love would grow. Love for God and love for each other. 
But our love for each other is based upon our love for God. Because we love God. We love our neighbor. Because we love God. Because God asks us to love our neighbor. And we love our neighbor even if he's obnoxious. We love our fellow believer even if they are obnoxious. Why? Because God's treated us in grace when we were his enemies. So we're obligated to treat our fellow believer in grace and love. But that takes thinking. It takes discipline to think that way. And I'd be the first to tell you, I'm a pastor. I'm in, I've been saved since 19 and I'm about 29 now. And you know what? I'm, I'm still having arrived. I still make stupid decisions. I still think in my head, well, what the heck were you thinking of? Were you stupid? You know, I think, you know, were you thinking? No, you weren't thinking. I wasn't thinking. We do that all the time. Discipline in our thinking is so important. Ask, we all need to ask God, help me to think right. Help me to stop and think right here. Because that's, that's where it's all about. It, you, we live and die by a thought. We could, a thought can make or break us. We think the wrong thought, we could be out of fellowship. We think that we can make another decision, we're back in fellowship. Everything is about decisions we make. Now look at Romans 15, 16. Let's wrap this up. Romans 15, 16, you should have been back there. To be a minister, he says, of Christ Jesus, for the express purpose of being a minister of Christ Jesus. This is why God gave him the gift, gift of apostleship. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, uh, or by the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that Paul's Christian readers in Rome will experience this sanctification by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. This is accomplished, again, by obeying Paul's Spirit-inspired commands and prohibitions that appear in the main argument of the epistle. Don't miss that. Holy Spirit inspires the scriptures. He's talking to us. When we obey the word of God, which the Spirit inspired, we're appropriating the power of the Spirit in our lives. Faith appropriates the power of the Spirit in our life. That's the power we need to experience our sanctification. So to summarize our study of this verse, two statements I'll say, I'll have for you. One, Romans 15, 16 reveals... Paul reveals in this verse to the Christians in Rome that the Father gave him the spiritual gift of apostleship for the purpose of being a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Then he states that he served the gospel of God like a priest in order that his offering of the Gentiles would cause themselves to be acceptable to the Father by being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work here this evening and helping us to understand these things and comprehend these things and to start putting them into practice or continue to put them into practice if we're already doing so. And we just pray, Father, that also that you would bless the fellowship after, that it would be guided and directed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and also give us traveling mercies on the way home for those in the chapel. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.